0: It is so good uh, to be back with you, finishing off this uh, series. And it's good to see we've made some progress and people coming uh, and sitting down in the front rows. I can see we've still got some some room to grow in that. I don't know if any of you are sitting there thinking, oh, I can do that next Sunday. I'm I'm just going to do it. I, I can do it. No, I won't die. I won't get uh, the, the ground won't kind of open up and get swallowed in. Uh, and uh, and but, but it's good to be back and, and finishing actually this series on Genesis 1 to 11. For those who don't know, the, the the word Genesis in in Hebrew is literally seed pod. Um, it, it's about the seed. Uh, it's it's about a book of origins it's about a book of uh, beginnings uh, so if you want to know why things are the way they are you need look no further than genesis 1 to 11 especially genesis 1 to 3 if you want to know about the meaning of things uh, this is a book about seminal things um, seminal literally means seed and genesis means seed pod uh, and so if you want to know about things like marriage and family and singleness you need look no further than Genesis 1 to 11 to understand what those things are about. If you want to understand about money, sex and power, there's so much in that Genesis 1 to 11 to understand what those things are about. If you want to know about creativity and culture and creation care, there's so much in these um, chapters that we can learn about, about these things. But there's one more thing uh, to look at that we're going to look at this morning. And that is, we're going to look at the meaning of the city. I wonder if you noticed as we looked at Genesis 11, and, and by the way, I urge you, have your Bibles in, in front of you. Uh, even if that's on your phone, we're going to be looking at Genesis 11. And, and this word, the city, it comes up three times in the passage. We learn about the meaning of the city in Genesis 11. And not only that, but... It's the goal of human history. That was in our second reading. I don't know if you picked that up. Revelation 21 and 22 talks about the city. Uh, verse 2 from our reading, I saw, says John, this is the end of days, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then in chapter 22, verse 1, then God showed me the river of the water of life. Where does that come from? Can you remember? Genesis 2, the rivers pouring out from God's presence in the Garden of Eden Um, and and now in the new heavens, this city and then it was flowing this water from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle, get this, of the city's main street. That's the new heavens and the new earth, a city with a main street, a river pouring down. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. And so we get, friends, a city at the beginning of the Bible and we get a city at the end of the Bible. And so the Bible has at least three things to say about The meaning of the city. And that's what we're going to go go through this morning, borrowing once again from Tim Keller. Here are the three things. Firstly, we're going to see the need for the city. Secondly, we're going to see the problem with the city. And finally, we're going to see the healing of the city. Are you ready? Let's do it. Firstly, the need for the city. Uh, Here's the context uh, ever since Adam and Eve rose up in rebellion against God, remember the evil one said, you will be like God, and they rose up in, rem- uh, in rebellion, the whole human race has been taken out of this unimaginable, unimaginable paradise, the Garden of Eden, the presence of the Almighty God. They've been thrust out now into a howling, wild wilderness of sin ever since they rose up in rebellion. And and this place that they've been thrust out to is not safe. It's not secure and it's not very satisfying. It's all we know. It's what we've been born into. But when you put it next to the Garden of Eden and the Paradise of God, you realise that it's a howling wilderness away from God. And so in that context, in Genesis 11, in verse 4, the people say... Come, let us build ourselves a city. So where does this desire to build a city come from? Well, firstly, there's a social aspect, isn't there? We were made for community. We were made for relationship. We were made to belong. And so Rick Warren says, God didn't create us to be alone. He created us for relationship. We were made in his image and he is a relational God. We have sayings, don't we, like um, safety in numbers, right? And um, so so the idea there is that when humans gather together, there's a consolidation of of power. We say things like it takes a village to raise a child. And so there's this social aspect to the need for the city. But I want you to notice there's also a technological aspect An idea of technological advancement. It's there in verse 3. Have a look. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Um, So, you know, thousands of years later, we miss it probably, but uh, in the ancient Near East, this is a major technological advancement. They've gone from assembling stones to build stuff, and you think how far you can go doing that, to now this um, ability to build bricks and so therefore to build things that are bigger and better and stronger and higher and so there's this there's this creativity uh, of building things of of making things as one pastor says god is the ultimate creator and he has infused us with a creative spirit when we engage in creative endeavors we're participating in his work and expressing our unique Gifts, brothers and sisters, I'm convinced that as we become a more spirit-filled church, we're going to see more creativity. I'm not just talking about art. I'm talking about architecture. I'm talking about business. I'm talking about new things in the the community. Just like the river can't help in the Garden of Eden, pouring out from the garden to fill the whole world. As God's spirit fills us as a community, I'm convinced that that creative spirit will overflow and we're going to see new things brought to bear fruit like we see in the garden and the new heavens as we become a spirit-filled church. But there's a technological aspect to that, isn't there? Building things, making things, getting better at building things and making things. But finally, the need for the city we see is that it's a place of spiritual seeking. Look at what they say in verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, in the ancient context, the heavens are where the gods are. This is not just trying to build a a tall skyscraper. This is about reaching to heaven to where the gods are. And so this is about spiritual encounter, spiritual longing with heaven, with the gods. It's it's about transcendence up into the heavens. And, And, you know, God says in Ecclesiastes 3, God has set eternity in our hearts um, the Apostle Paul in um, in Athens, where he's speaking to like the intelligentsia uh, of the day at the Areopagus in Acts 17, he says, God's purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Can you see how the city is a place of longing and spiritual seeking? Uh, there's a, a Trappist monk called Thomas Keating and he says this, uh, he says... In the heart of the city, there's often a longing for something more, something beyond the concrete and steel. The longing can lead to a spiritual quest, a search for meaning and purpose. Now, archaeologists will tell you that what, what they're building here is a Babylonian ziggurat. Have you ever heard of that? Or, or can you picture what one of those are? That, that these were from the time where they're building a ziggurat, kind of like, um, like a pyramid but they're more like steps and then a flat surface with an altar to reach up to the gods. So this is a temple. This is a place of worship, a place of spiritual seeking. So we're going to see the problem with the city in a sec. But at the moment, after we've looked at those three things and the need for the city, the social aspect, the technological aspect and the spiritual seeking aspect, I want you to see that, that the city is good. The city is God's idea. I think about Jesus and how he looks upon the city of Jerusalem and he weeps over the city. Think about how God sends Jonah To the city, the wicked city of Nineveh. Why? Because he loves the city. And why does he love the city more than anything else? Because of the people who are there in the city. And so that speaks to the need for the city. It's It's a good thing. But now let's look at the problem with the city. And and it's there, the the Hebrews were master storytellers and there's a there's a hint at it in verse two uh, where it says, as they migrated from the east. More literally it says, as people moved eastward. Now here's a trivia question for you. Can anyone guess when and where the journey from the east began? The journey from the east. It began back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve reached out to put themselves in the place of God and then God drove them out of the garden and I think it's in verse 24 of chapter 3. It was out of the east. The entrance was from the east. Then in chapter 4 of Genesis, you've got the murderous Cain. And this says it even more explicitly in verse 16 of chapter 4. It says, Then Cain went away from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Have you heard of that book? John Steinbeck? East of Eden. What's going on here? This is the tragedy of all tragedies as the human race moves further and further away from the presence of God, the fountains, the water, the fruit, the streams, the presence and paradise of God. They're moving further and further away from the presence of God, from the abundant overflow of the rivers of life. And so make no mistake, friends, this city and this tower will not be built on the glory and the power and the presence of God. They're not building the city of God. What are they building? They're building the city of man. The Westminster Catechism opening question from over 400 years ago, the question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But what do they say in verse 4? Have a look and I'll get my water while you look. I've got two for good measure. What do they say in verse 4? Come, let us build ourselves a city and and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for who? Let us make a name for ourselves. This city will not be built to the glory of God. This city will be built to the pride of man. Humans. Humans. Amazing friends we're, we're reading a story, the Word of God from thousands of years ago from the primeval history of the human race and we read a voice like a verse like that and wonder has anything changed? Just to lower the bar a little bit here's some words from Kim Kardashian. The pursuit of fame is often fuelled by an insatiable hunger for recognition, driving people to push the boundaries of what they can achieve. Is this ringing any bells, folks? Has anything changed? And so at this point I think we can draw on more ancient and more valuable wisdom than Kim Kardashian back to the 5th century a guy called Augustine of Hippo who wrote this seminal book. Um, The context was that the Roman Empire was crashing down and civilization was being destroyed. The barbarians were at the gate and he writes this book, The City of God and he says that the story of human history is a tale of two cities. It's the tale of the city of man and it's the tale of the city of God and the city of man is built on the principle of pride and self People go there to make a name for themselves, to get recognition, to establish themselves in their career. They go there to get money and sex and power. People go there to get. And the reason that they feel like this is what? Because they're east of Eden, further and further away from the presence of the almighty ever God, Jesus The Lord says in Jeremiah, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, think Garden of Eden, and have dug their own cisterns, cisterns that cannot hold water. This means that the city of man built so far east of Eden is a place of complete and utter exhaustion. Did you hear that in in wonderful Kim Kardashian's comment? Insatiable hunger, driving people to push of what they can achieve. Here's another one, Paris Hilton. The pursuit of fame can be a relentless and lonely journey driven by insecurities of wanting to be seen and recognised. And the word says so clearly, that's because you're east of Eden. You've forsaken the living God. He would so fill you. So what's the motivating force behind going to the city for these guys? What's the motivating force of getting up and going to work every day? It's there in verse 4, to make a name for ourselves. I've told you this is part of my own story when I was doing ministry back in Melbourne. That's one of the main reasons I left my home church where I was a pastor and where I grew up to go to the bigger church, which, by the way, was also closer to the city, the bigger and the better. Well, of course I said I'm going there to make a name for the Lord. It's the bigger church and more opportunity. But in my heart of hearts... Poverty, even as a minister, a child of God, desperate, hungry, insecure, driven to fill that well in my own efforts. Do you know what the problem with that is? Well, there are a lot of problems with that, not least that it led to burnout in just three years. But you know what the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 says? He says that one day, this is for you folks, everything that we build will be tested with fire. And everything that was motivated by the pride of self and everything that was built for the city of man will be utterly consumed in the fire. And only what's motivated by the glory of God and building the city of God will endure that fire and last into eternity forever and ever. As the Lord says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Kieran, you're trying to rob me. And I won't have it. So what's the motivating force behind your work? Hey? Why do you get up and go to work, whether paid or unpaid, in the morning? Whose city are you building? Is it the glory of the everlasting God? Or is it the pitiful self? Hear this, friends. Only one life will soon be passed only what's done for Christ will last and make no mistake if a pastor like me can say that he lives for the glory of God when all the while living for the praise of man then I'm sure you're able to do it too God have mercy on us your glory is too beautiful to miss out on purify our hearts So what's the solution? We've, we've looked at the need for the city, we've looked at the problem with the city, but now let's look at the healing of the city. Is there any hope? I mean, Jeremiah seventeen nine, one of my favourite verses, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And God says, I, the Lord. Is there any hope? Well, there is, brothers and sisters, have a look. Verse 5, it's four words. Can you see them? The Lord came down. Here's the big idea, friends. We don't have to fight the curse of being cut off From God by working our way up to dethrone God and to try and save ourselves because God has already come down in Christ to reverse the curse and to bring us back into His everlasting city that is safe, that is secure, and that is all satisfying. Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, streams of living water will flow out from them. I want you to notice this pattern in the text because the first move in this story is humans rising up in rebellions against God. Does that sound like the Garden of Eden to you, Adam and Eve? Uh, They're rising up in rebellion to make a name for themselves and to build a city on the self. But the second move in the story from verse five is what? The Lord came down. He came down to judge human pride Uh, The the kids' talk today was awesome. In in Babylon, you think of the message of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, which is, by the way, root word Babel, Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar rises up in pride to build this statue and these towers to reach to the heavens. And God knocks it down. He comes down in judgment against human pride because that's the way to suicide and self-destruction, but he comes down in grace. And so I want you to see this incredible contrast in the story between Religion and the gospel. Because religion says I have to work my way up. And when I say religion, please understand there's secular religion and there's this kind of religion. They're both the same. The principle is I have to work my way up to the top for my salvation. You just replace God with whatever, being hot, being rich, being All of those things. It's the same principle. The the principle of religion is I have to work my way up, Babel, but the Gospel says, verse 5, the Lord came down. And then again in verse 7, let us go down. And these are two diametrically opposed movements. Humans rising up to save themselves, God coming down to save us. So the first approach is about what I achieve, but the second approach is about what I receive. The first approach is about self-salvation so that whoever's at the top can boast because they made it to the top. But the gospel is about God coming down and the last shall be first so that before God no one can boast. It's to his glory. The Lord came down to save us. And so as these people Uh, move further and further away from the fullness of God and the blessing of God, they get to work, to rise up to heaven, to make a name for themselves. But it doesn't work. And so the second movement, verse 5, what does God do? The Lord came down. And I want you to see how this works with Abraham. It is Genesis 12, 1-2 and this is where we see this contrast between religion and the gospel most sharply. I hope you got your Bibles open because in verse 4 it says that they wanted to make a name for themselves but what does chapter 12, verse 2 say? What does God say? I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. Friends, if you want glory, if you want greatness, if you want a name that will last forever and ever and ever, I'll show you how. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Can you see how all this points us ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ? Where else have we seen the culmination of the human race rising up against God where one last time they can finally get their hands on the living God, the word made flesh, they can finally reach to the heavens because he's come down and get their hands on him, He's he's in flesh to get rid of him once and for all. Where else have we seen human rebellion at its culmination and peak than in the Lord Jesus Christ? Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12 says, Now Jesus also also suffered outside the city gate. Outside the city gate. Why? To make the people holy through his blood. And then it goes on, And we here also do not have an enduring city. But now we look to the city that is to come. What kind of God takes the ultimate act of rebellion, the ultimate insurrection, the ultimate spitting in his face and uses that to transform those people from enemies into friends? What kind of God does that? I'll tell you what kind of God. It is the sovereign, almighty and powerful God but so much more than that, it is a gracious and loving God who would do that for us. So here's the thing, friends. Jesus lost the city so we could become citizens of the city to come. You see, after Jesus died and rose again, He was trampled under our feet. The purpose of the cross was to erase his name forever and grind it into the dust. And what did God do? He gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he seated him at the right hand. And then God the Father gave him the spirit. And while the people were gathered, the disciples, Jesus poured out his spirit. What does that mean? It means The Lord came down. The Lord came down. He reversed the curse. And now through the proclamation of the crucified king, God is gathering a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation throughout the world to lay down their lives, not for the pride of man but for the glory of God so that one day human culture and human language will reach its final and ultimate purpose, which is in Revelation 7, 9. John says, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, at Pentecost, the curse of Babel was reversed. He, he, stick with me here. You see, what was the goal of language at um, Babel? The goal of language was to make a name for ourselves. What was the word on their lips? The words on their lips were me, myself and I. And so God confused their language, right? Right. But at Pentecost, you've got people from every tribe and tongue gathered. Why does Luke in Acts chapter 2 spend two whole long verses describing of this nation and that's 16 different nations that were gathered there on that Pentecost Sunday? I mean, come on, can we get on to the interesting bit? No, Luke is pointing back to the Tower of Babel where the name on their lips was me, myself and I and now they come together, the Spirit is poured out, the fire descends, they're speaking in other tongues and what does the crowd hear? Me myself and I. No, chapter 2 verse 11. We hear them declaring the magnificent works of God. No longer are they glorifying the self, they're glorifying the Son. They've been set free from the dark dungeon of the self into the God's amazing light to glorify the name of Jesus crucified, risen, ascended and returning. But this is not just pie in the sky when you die. This is cake on your plate while you wait. Here's what Tim Keller says. Listen to this. Jesus lost the city of God so we could become citizens of the city which is to come. Get this. Making us salt and light in the city which is. Jesus says to the church of St. Philip's, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill. So what would it look like For you, for us, to gather together and to be salt and light, building the city of God amongst the city of man in your homes, in your workplaces, in your families and as we gather in church. We're a city on a hill, building the everlasting city of God. I'll tell you what it looked like for Johann Sebastian Bach, just for fun. At the bottom of many of his musical masterpieces, do you know what he wrote? These glorious masterpieces of music that he wrote. He wrote the initials SDG. Do you know what it stands for? Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone, the glory. Some of you think, particularly young people, I can't see a lot. Sorry, that's not meant as an insult. Um, uh, uh, Some of you think that giving your life more fully to God, it's true for all of us, giving your life more fully to God will make you Mediocre, middle of the road and medium. And the reason you think that, if that's true, it's because you think just like the people in the Tower of Babel, that somehow God's glory is small and your glory is great. And may God have mercy on you that you've got it that to show you you've got it exactly the wrong way around. That that the only way to glory is, is to glorify God. That's how you write songs that people will be listening to 300 years from now. And not only that, but when we've been there 10,000 years, it's the only kingdom that will last. Um, here's, here's another example of how someone's trying to build the city within the city. I've got a friend, uh, she's a, a senior radiologist, um, uh, highly sought after, and she runs these training conferences for other um, radiologists, for, for other doctors. And she, and she says to them, guys, I'm not taking any money from this. I don't, want, I, don't, I don't want any of your money. I'm giving all of this money to a child sponsorship program called Compassion Australia. Uh, it's based in the church. Uh, it's serving people in the name of Jesus. It's Christ-centered. And I don't want your money. I want you to give the money. Uh, if, if you are going to give me money, it's going to be to them or you can give to them directly. Guess how many child sponsors she has so far? She's got 25. She's got 25 child sponsors. Now, that's one way, okay? She does all of her work to the glory of God. I'm just trying to give you ideas. What would it look like for you to take a step forward further to build the kingdom of God, the city of God today? And if you are, be encouraged. May the spirit be the wind in your sails as you seek to build. What would it look like for us to do that I've been so encouraged thinking about the the rivers pouring out of the temple in Ezekiel 47 because God is a well that doesn't run dry. And the amazing thing about that image is that the further and further they get away from the temple, the rivers get deeper and deeper. How does that work? It's meant meant to run out, isn't it? When you get further away from the source, not out God. As we go further out, the the river runs deeper and deeper. He's an everlasting supply. One last thing. The pride of man is to rise up in order to save ourselves, but the grace of God is to come down. He came down at Babel. He came down to Abraham, but ultimately he came down in Christ. But friends, it gets even better than this because the truth of the gospel is this. He comes down whenever we pray. What were they doing in Acts chapter 2 when God came down for 10 days straight? They were praying to the living God and God came down. What was Anna doing even before Pentecost? Anna in Luke, what was she doing when God came down? She was praying. She was praying for the coming of the kingdom of God and their little baby comes to her, the living God. And why, when did it happen? It happened when she was praying. What was Peter doing, the apostle, when he was on the rooftop and he had that wild vision of the animals coming down on a sheet? What was he doing when God came down? He was praying. What were Paul and Silas doing in Acts 16 when they were in prison and all hope was lost? It says that they were worshipping and singing and praying and there was an earthquake and they were set free. What does Pretty much every epistle that Paul wrote begin with that he's saying he's doing for the churches. He's saying, I'm praying. I'm praying for you. So let me finish with this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. And heal their land. So what happens when we pray? The Lord comes down. Do you believe it? Can I get an amen? Can I get a hallelujah? Praise the Lord. This is good news, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me finish with Zephaniah 3, prophecy from the Lord, verse 9. On that day I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. That's another word for prayer. I'll purify their lips that they may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. Amen? Amen. Let's sing with purified lips.